in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So when you think about all these rains that we've been getting and the rains that are ahead, uh, a verse like that sounds a a bit grim because we've, we've sort of had enough rain. But the meaning of it is that God gives gifts without thought to who's just and unjust, but he gives to everyone. Now, I remember that growing up, my grandmother, especially during times of drought, and I don't know why she would go to this verse, she would, she would quote this verse, and she always quoted it in such a way that it hinted that we weren't getting any rain because we were the unjust. And uh, I never quite understood that. She said, rain falls on the just and the unjust, like, uh, like we were due some rain because we were unjust. It's interesting that Jesus should bring up the just and the unjust, and they're both receiving God's grace. Because do we, we, we think of the good and the bad, the ones that have done something wrong and the ones that have done something right, a lot like my grandmother who would quote this. But do we think of it in terms of who's just and who's unjust? Uh, take a look with me at Romans 3. This is what we talked about last time when we said that we were going to dump this um, box of salvation concepts out on the table and take a look at them and find out, okay, what really belongs in that box and what doesn't. And when you look at Romans chapter 3, starting around verse 21, Paul says, apart from the law, there the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Now this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Uh, The just and the unjust are those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. And God is just, meaning that he is righteous and he is fair. Now, there are a lot of words floating around in English here, but in the original, they'll all be the same word and the same variation of the word. I could tell you that that word is dikaiosune, uh, but what, would that, what good would that do you? But just understand this, that whenever you see the words righteousness, justice, um, fairness, and especially righteousness and justice. We, we might think of those as two different concepts in English, but it's the same concept here. It's the same word and the same idea. Because we could think of righteousness as a sort of moral goodness. Someone who's righteous is someone who, you know, we might even think they're a bit holy. And, and yet that's not exactly the same idea because holiness is related, but it'll be a little different. But we tend to think of righteous people as people who, 
uh, don't do the things that are morally objectionable and maybe, um, maybe shine just a little glossier than the rest of us. And everybody else is just sort of, you know, we're just sort of averaging out there doing good. We're just average good, but righteousness is, is a higher mark of good, okay? That if good people are the C students, then the righteous people are the A-plus students. That might be a common misconception of all this. But here in Romans, you really don't get those grades of A, B. It's, it's really pass-fail. You get righteous and not righteous. And the message, the theology behind Romans is going to be, well, when it comes to the pass-fail test, you've all failed. Nobody made it. But the good news is, that God has his own sense of righteousness. Now think of justice here. In that, he's going to demonstrate his fairness, his justice, and he's going to justify all of us for his purposes, not for us. Not because we deserve it, but for his purposes. Now if we move, if we bring up the term justice, you might think of, different things than you would with righteousness, okay? Uh, we have a justice department in the United States. I'm not aware of a righteousness department in the United States. We, uh, we, we, maybe we've tried, but that's certainly not around right now. And yet, in the concepts here in Scripture, justice and righteousness go together. That if somebody is righteous, they're going to be just. They're going to practice and do justice. Justice is that, is that sense of things being fair and right. And justice isn't just fair and right because of the law. You know, you know, Paul's trying to show them, look at verse 21. Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Righteousness according to the law, that sort of A plus, above average good righteousness. You only get that if you if you define righteousness in terms of legal code. Well, I do this, and I do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. Therefore, that puts me at a certain level of righteousness. Some people are not at that level of righteousness, or I'm not at that level of righteousness because I can't quite get there. Paul will go through all of that in Romans chapter 7 where he'll say the thing that I want to do is the thing that I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do is the thing that I do. And that's, that's sort of a... That's the game of righteousness according to the law or according to the rules or according to the code. But he says that the law and the prophets have always indicated that there is a type of righteousness that is more than the law. That it is the righteousness of God. And it has to do with the sense of what's right and what's fair. And that is defined by God. Righteousness... This, this whole word set that, had, that, that we translate as righteousness, justice, being justified, made right. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways in English to translate that. It also has to do with setting things right in a relationship. So that uh, between parties that have been in conflict or parties that have been in dispute, we make things right. We make amends. We settle things. We, we reconcile. Although reconcile is going to be, a, again, a different word, but it's connected. God is making things right between humanity and himself, and he's doing it 
through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's where all of this is heading. So the righteousness that will make things right, the justifications that will set things right between us and God isn't going to come by our ability to get the rules right. It's going to come by our trust in Jesus Christ, who God worked through and in his obedience to God made things right. All right, now I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, for me, going through this stuff in Romans 3 is sort of like, um, you know, if you ever go into the cheesecake factory and you eat that cheesecake, boy, you're about two bites into it and you got to rest because that stuff is so rich. You just got to like, get me a coffee, I don't know, something. You got to take a drink of water, then you can go back into it. And really, you know, this I have, to, I have to come to slowly like that because it's rich and it's deep. But we're going to get through it, okay, because it's as good as cheesecake. Uh, the, uh, in Matthew 5, let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, we're going we're gonna, to uh, see what Jesus has to say about this because Jesus is very interested in the Sermon on the Mount on the topic of righteousness. So much so that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he talks about a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees. Could it be that Jesus, in describing it as a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees, and Paul describing it as a righteousness apart from the law, could they be talking about the same thing? I, I think they might be. Because it's a righteousness that goes down to the deep core of things, not just the surface rules. In 520, he says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are not the low rung on the ladder. Anybody can go past the, the reprobates and the degenerates and, you know, the people who uh, uh, have wrecked their lives and the lives of others and say, oh, well, you know, your righteousness has got to be better than that. Oh, well, saying much i mean that's that's easy that's the that's the 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 low standard jesus has just gone to the high standard and says you know the ones that you hold up as the uh, you know as the as the acme as the high point of of righteousness you're gonna have to do better than that but it's not that you'll outwork them it's that you will out trust them because their trust, that standard of righteousness, is based on their ability to get it right, to be right. In the kingdom of heaven, your, your trust is in the power and the spirit of God to make you right. Okay, and then Jesus starts to go through some examples. And he says, you've heard it said like this, but I'm telling you this. You've heard it said like this. And you'll notice that in every case, he's moving from just the rule to the law. So, for example, with the first one, he says, you've heard it said by the people long ago, you'll, you'll, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. He's saying, you don't get extra credit on the test because you haven't murdered anyone. Well, I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm okay. No, he says, you, you've got to go further than that because the root of murder is anger. And if you are angry with a brother or sister, if you insult them, if you call them names, if you're not reconciled with them, he says, then, then you haven't really practiced the kingdom righteousness. 
anyway, he, he gives other examples of that until he finally gets to the notion of loving your enemies, which is a radical thing to ask for. But the standard of love is such that if we're going to be like God, if we're going to be like Christ, then we're not going to hold back. We're not going uh, to say, well, I'll love these people, but I can't love these people. I'll love these people. Understand, it may be hard to love certain people, but if you're going to practice the sort of love that comes with the kingdom, you and I don't get to make that call. When God sends out rain, he doesn't just put rain on his favorite people and water their gardens, and then everybody else has to go through a famine. It doesn't work like that. Uh, it's not just the, his favorite people that get the sunshine and everybody else has to live in darkness. No, it's not like that. There is uh, a righteousness of God, Paul says back in Romans 3, that comes on account of faith in Jesus Christ for all and upon all who have faith or believe. That's verse 22. Now, again, here's one of those interesting words, faith and believe. In the original language, that's the same word. One is the noun form, one is the verb form. Just like righteousness is the uh, noun form and, and justifying is the verb form. It's the same word, but one is the concept and the other one is the action. And so these are brought together so that in, uh, uh, in, with faith, we are faithing in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't say that in English. We say believing. But believing, uh, I, and the problem is not the original language. The problem is what's happened to our English language. We've turned belief into um, nothing more than agreeing that something is. Do you believe in Santa Claus? Do you believe in UFOs? Do you believe in elves? Do you believe in, you know, in the power of magic? Whatever. We, we ask these, these questions, and all we have to do is say yes or no. So if we believe in Jesus Christ, we say, yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. But faith is where you get to the point of saying, okay, you believe, but does it matter? Because faith is trust. Everybody's heard the old story about the fellow who could tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. And he says, you do believe I can do it again? You know, he does it once. And they say, yeah, you can do it again. You can do it again. And he does it again. He says, do you believe I can do it a third time? And they're like, yeah, you can do it a third time. He says, all right, then who wants to sit on my shoulders and go across with me? Oh, wait. That's the difference between faith and belief. Um, and we may need that, that bit of help in English. Again, the original text is good, and the original English translation is good because belief used to carry the idea that if you believed, it meant something. And maybe that's all we need to do, is just carry with it that understanding that if you really believe, then this belief has got to make a difference. Um, that trust in Jesus Christ means that we are not trusting in our ability to gain justification. But what we are doing is we are trusting. Verse 24 says, being justified freely. That means as a gift, it comes to us free without, without any uh, merit on our part. We haven't done anything to earn it. Being justified freely by his grace. And grace is one that we'll save for uh, uh, next week or the week after. Being justified through that, through all of that, means that we're set right. Now, here's where I think the word justified helps us understand what's going on here. Legal justification takes us so far. Um, you, know, you can have an investigation. 
an investigation into, say, like a, uh, a police action or a military action or a, uh, a decision that somebody has made. And the, the work of those that are doing the investigation is to decide if the action was justified. Now, we can justify something, and that means it was right. It doesn't always mean it's good. If, a, uh, if an officer has to shoot and kill someone in the line of duty, that might be justified. To say that it's good is, is, a, bit of, is a bit of a stretch. It's, it's certainly not just, it's not a fantastic, uh, you know, wonderful good. It's sad that that had to happen, and it's tragic, but it's justified the right thing to do. Uh, war can be justified, but it's not good. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate that it has to happen at, in the first place. Now, now, follow what I'm saying here. Um, God's justification will start with making things right, and then there's a process of salvation where things actually are going to be made good. And this is where the concept of God's righteousness and God making things right and justifying all things ends up with things becoming good. You don't find the the term so much in Romans, but that's where we're going to get the idea of sanctification. You'll find it in 1 Thessalonians, and again, we'll save that one for another time. But sanctification is that process of holiness where God is taking that which um, is warped by sin, and not just cleansing it, but making it more and more like him. He's taking us, and not just cleansing us and setting us right, but there is a process in which he will make us more and more like Jesus. We're going to look at some scriptures in the future that will show that. I want to show you one right here in Romans 8. Uh, In Romans 8, and, and, and this follows with understand that Paul is, is Romans is, is an extended conversation on his part on how all of these things link together, what it has to do with baptism, what it has to do with grace, what it means for sin. For example, he'll, uh, you talk about this process of sanctification. Even though he doesn't use the word, it's there. He says, so if we've been justified by grace, uh, do we continue to sin? No. He says, because since we've been rescued from sin, we've been saved from sin, we're dead to it. And then he takes us back to our baptism. He says, that's what your baptism meant. You were buried with Christ, and now you were raised you, you're, you're to walk a new life like Christ. So you're free from sin. You don't want to go back to it. You shouldn't go back to it. You're, that connection to sin is broken. Now you've been cleansed. Now We've got to do something with it. It's, something has been restored. Now what are you going to do? I always love to see, uh, just recently they had uh, restored, old restored cars. In um, I guess you'd have to have an old restored car. A new restored car wouldn't make much sense, would it? That'd be, I guess it's possible, but you know, you get the point. But the thing is, those, those old uh, automobiles that are restored, and they, they, they're so beautiful, and they look so neat, and, and, and sometimes they're fixed up in a certain way. But then you have to ask, okay, but can you drive it? Does it go anywhere? If it doesn't go anywhere, then you're missing something, aren't you? You're, you're missing something because it can't really be used. 
um, when it's useful, when it can be used, then the restoration has a purpose. And that's what God's doing. He's restoring us and cleansing us, but not just to set us on a shelf or to put us in a, uh, a garage somewhere. He wants us to be useful. Uh, in Romans 8, uh, verse 30, He's described this new way, that it's not the way of being justified by getting the rules right and setting the rules right, but it's a new kind of a justification that comes through Jesus Christ. Uh, he said the all-familiar statement in, in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those are the ones who've trusted in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit that gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Okay, so there's a new kind of righteousness. Now, uh, he's wrapping this up in Romans 8, 28. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. His restoration has a purpose. For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, those he, now, we'll get hung up on predestination every time, and I'm going to encourage you right now, let's not do that, okay? Just accept the fact that God's got a plan. That's what this is all about. That's as simple as it is. He says, those that he predestined, he also called, and notice the stair-step technique. He predestined them, he called them, in other words, he let them know, you know, let them in on the plan. And by the way, he's, he's also had in mind here, he's talked about Abraham already. Abraham was called. Okay, uh, and Abraham has, uh, it, I'm sorry, let me rewind just a second. In chapter 4, Abraham uh, is the first example of that kind of righteousness that isn't just new with Jesus Christ, but he said it's always been there in the Law and the Prophets. Here's Abraham. He can't do anything to justify himself, but when he trusts in God, he trusts in God for a future. He trusts in God for an heir. God gives that to him on his account as righteousness. He says he credited it to him as righteousness. His trust was good enough. Then he says that in the Psalms, David is talking about the blessings of that sort of righteousness. So he's showing us already that it's already there. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So justified is not the upper level here. That's just the first part of a process then that ends up in glory. And to be glorified with God is another topic that we'll have to bring up at another time as we sort through all this stuff. Because when we go back to chapter 3, we see that, that glory uh, is, is mentioned in there. All have sinned and fallen short of what? Not salvation, not heaven. We've fallen short of the glory of God. Um, glory, I should save this, but here's a little teaser. Glory is an interesting concept. We tend to think of it as uh, praise or attention or affirmation. And it's much more than that. Um, there, there is glory that has to do with the, uh, the weight, the substance, the importance and the magnificence of things so that heavenly bodies have glory. When you look at the stars, when you look at the sun, they have a certain kind of glory. Now, scientifically, we may write all that off as photons and, 
and heat energy and, you know, uh, uh, fusion reactions. That's fine. That's fine. But sometimes we need to think like ancients or we need to at least think like poets or we need to think like human beings who have a creative side and realize, you know, yeah, the sun's just a gigantic, you know, ball of gas that's burning out there in the sky. But we're also happy when it's shining. And the moon just might be an old rock reflecting that light from the other side of the earth. But boy, it sure is pretty at night when it shines full. And that's glory. Now, think about that in terms of God's glory and us. Left like we are, unjustified, we are, you know, we are as glory, you know, we're as glorious as an old uh, chunk of rock. But when we reflect his light, then we reflect the glory of God. We don't get there on our own at God's level of glory. But he's bringing us up into that. Why? Because that's his purpose. That was what he was doing at creation. And this is where we go back again. Remember that Genesis 3 is always in the background here. That God the creator putting us in the garden, having that relationship with us, giving us purpose. That's how it was meant to be, but sin has warped that. But now God is at work changing all of that, reversing the sin and the curse that we brought about because we thought we could be as good as God. He's going to give us his glory, even though in the garden we, humanity, tried to grab it for ourselves. But to get there, we're going to have to trust, and we're going to have to let go of the things that keep us from that. All right, so there's more to come on justification. This all has to do with salvation. This all has to do with what God is up to, rescuing us from sin. And remember that all of this stuff, the way we act, the way we behave, really fits into this big box and this, this bucket of things that have to do with salvation. Because if we get anything out of this lesson on basics, I want us to understand that salvation is more than just fire insurance from hell when you die. That it's more than just a ticket to heaven. It's really about eternal life that starts now and continues on into eternity that glorifies God and is made right with God even now, no matter what happens to us otherwise. All right, we're going to sing this song together. If you need to partake of communion, that's set up for you in room 100, and then we'll be dismissed in prayer after this song. Let's stand and sing.